Welcome to our second panel discussion. We'd like to say we've had a wonderful time here at the Women's Symposium, and we're so glad that you have joined us today. I have a group of wonderful gentlemen beside me here, and I'm gonna let each one introduce themselves, but before we begin, I would just like to offer a word of prayer. Yeah. Kind Father in heaven, we are so privileged to be part of your people. We don't understand all the wheels within wheels of your governance and your organization, but we're thankful that you are at the helm and that we can trust everything in you and that you have given us a guidebook that will very clearly tell us where we should be going. And so we depend on you for that. So as we discuss this important topic, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. My name is Laurel Domsteegt. I'm from Berrien Springs, Michigan, and I'm very happy to be here with you. I am Mario Veloso. I, I'm living now in Yucaipa, California, but originally I come from Chile. My last work in the church was on, as an associate secretary of the General Conference. Well, my name is Stephen Bohr. Definitely not a good last name for a preacher. <laughs> and uh, I'm the president of Secrets Unsealed and also the senior pastor of Fresno Central Seventh-day Adventist Church here in Fresno, California. I sleep in my own bed during this symposium. <laughs> I'm Raymond Holmes, retired seminary faculty member for 20 years. I live in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in retirement pastoring a small church, which is less than a mile from my last Lutheran church that I pastored. I'm John Peters. Uh, I'm from Pennsylvania, originally from San Diego, California. And I'm a pastor in the Pennsylvania Conference. I'm Kevin Paulson. I have served as an evangelist, as a pastor, and as a revivalist, and uh, presently awaiting reassignment in ministry. Hello, my name is Jim Howard, and I'm a pastor in the Michigan Conference and thoroughly enjoying my time in California. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ingo Sorki, originally from Germany, but now living south of Dallas. I'm a professor of religion at Southwestern Adventist University. So, gentlemen, we have uh, lately heard from the seminary, Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, that Christ is indeed head of the church, and I don't think any of us would disagree with that. But we also know that he has delegated his authority to his stewards here on earth. And this is what we're going to be discussing today, is the government of this body of believers, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And we would just like to begin by giving us a little background, a little history to know where we've come from, how it all started, started with just a group of believers in 1844 who didn't need a government, but very soon things began to look like maybe we did need some government. And so um, who would like to speak to the question, 
Uh, first of all, give a brief history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church organization beginning in 1863, and then how things changed in 1901. Who would like to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is interesting when we think about the, the history of the church. Because we began without any organization. Actually, thinking that organization was not appropriate. But you see, we soon discovered that we had a mission. It took, it took a little while for us to discover that too. But when we discovered that we, we ha have a mission, then you have to organize your army to conquer the world. Because it was the whole world the objective of this mission. And um, there was such a small group of people that was left after 1844 experience. And a little over 50 thinking on the whole world. That is amazing. But it was the Lord who was giving that mission. Amen. And for the Lord, this world is very small. Mm-hmm. So he did it once with 12. What, why not with 53? Amen. So the organization came in. 1863 was the year when we began to exist as an organized body. From there on, many experiences finding the way to have it strong and well-established. And uh, we began with uh, some units of organization. The conferences came in, and uh, also the general conference. Uh, but as we grew, we needed an other kind of organization in the middle of the two we are talking. And uh, it took um, about half a century for us to mm, get to the level of us of needing another uh, layer of organization. And that came in uh, in the General Conference of 1901. And I'm going to refer a little bit to this session because at that time uh, a reorganization of the church came. And the, the department of the church were organized in a very central way. They were already working, many of the departments, but rather independently, one to each, each other. And some of them even from the central command. So now all of them came 
in one unit. And also the unions were established. And the unions were given some kind of autonomy to work. D decision, decisions could be made final in, at the union level. Before every decision from the church around the world was taken to the general conference. And the general conference made up by, by just a few men. So it developed a little bit of a kind of a centralized power. I would not use any other word that is being used around because uh, they have a critical element inside. But it was a centralized power. And then there was a need to decentralize the power coming closer to where the churches were. So that's why the unions were organized. This was given some power of decision within the unity of the body. Some people today are talking about the power of the unions, which are final, and the general conference doesn't have any power to um, either uh, command the unions or change whatever the union decides. This was not the intention. I read a book recently that this was the way the unions were established in 1901. Not really. Because the way the unions worked through the years for a century, more than a century, without having any uh, questions to the general conference. I mean, it was within the unity of the whole body of the church, the world body. And uh, uh, now they're coming with a few, a few, I'm not talking about the whole unions, a few unions, because um, in the world, most of the places are just the same as it has been working since 1901, up to this day. So this concept that the union has the power to command the church in that area uh, without intervention from the general conference, and in this I'm inclu including the division because the division is an extension of the general conference. Uh, this is not from 1901 session, nor from the uh, policies neither from the philosophy of organization of the church. Uh, I say philosophy, it should, I, I should say uh, theology, because this is closer to the reality. And uh, we are working as a body in the whole world. And uh, the authority of the church is not in a few uh, organizational bodies, but 
in the members of the church. Actually, what was done in 1901 was to call attention that the authority and power of the church was based in the members. And the General Conference in session because that is where the representation of the members of the church of the world is present. Then that is the highest power be, 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 before God. I mean, be, uh, God is the highest and from there on the people, the, 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 the members of the church. So this is how it has been organized, and it has been working very nicely so far. Amen. And we hope that this will continue to be this way in the future. Elder, Velo Elder Veloso, it helps to keep in mind that um, just as local churches are responsible for the discipline of local members, so are union conferences responsible for deciding who is qualified to be ordained to the gospel ministry. However, just as local churches are not permitted to develop their own standards for the discipline of members and are obligated to adhere to the policies established by the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual, which of course are voted by the general conference in session, the same principle applies to the unions and ordination. The world body of Seventh-day Adventists through the General Conference Working Policy is what decides on standards for pastoral ordination and the unions are obligated to adhere to those standards just as local churches are obligated to adhere to the church manual standards when it comes to the discipline of members. And for those who might not be aware of it, on page 113, 113 of the current edition of the General Conference Working Policy, the one that is dated for the years 2013 and 2014, in, on that page of the General Conference Working Policy, it says that appointments to positions as chaplains, departmental directors, or pastors shall not be limited by race or color, neither shall these be limited by gender, except those requiring ordination to the gospel ministry. Thank you. I'd like to just back up just a minute, back into the history a little bit. Please somebody explain to me about the overall structure. Are we like a hierarchy like the Roman Catholic Church or... Um, sometimes you hear that being said, you know, like we have a pope and, and that. How do we discuss and refer to the government of our church? I don't want to answer your question, <laughs> but I want to make an observation in the light of what Dr. Veloso and my friend Kevin have said. I have been since, especially since I've been involved in this issue, I have been fascinated by the makeup of that early group that we refer to as the pioneers. Amen. Just a handful of people that God had impressed and called 
there's not one of them that had a PhD. Amen. Not one of them was trained in the biblical languages. Their methodology to find out what the truth was that God wanted to impress upon their minds and hearts was twofold. Study the Bible and pray. Amen. Now, I'm sure that their discussions were lively. <laughs> Differences of opinion, perhaps. But the more they discussed, the more they prayed, they were able to hammer out, as God hammered it in, the doctrines upon which this church is founded. Amen. Not one PhD among them. Lay people, one or two perhaps pastors, as I recall, but mostly lay people. Yeah, I was just going to say something about the whole concept um, of hierarchy as it's sometimes being referred to. Um, I think that the idea there is that the General Conference president has influence over all the decisions of the church and actually ends up being the one who makes them, regardless of everything that happens, that he's the one who makes the decisions. And I can understand that because from a local pastoral standpoint, there's some members who sometimes feel that way. They feel, well, the pastor is just going to do what the pastor wants to do. Um, but the way that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is built is beautiful because I don't have the authority right. to do that. Right. Um, I, I cannot even, you know, somebody will even say to me, why don't you put so-and-so in as an elder or put so-and-so? I don't do that. <laughs> the nominating committee does that. And, and the church board makes major decisions. But if there's a really major decision, the church and business session has to make it. I can't. I can't. Um, discipline someone. I can't do any of that. Right. Um, all of that happens by representation from the whole church. And in the same way, as Dr. Veloso mentioned, um, the worldwide church has representatives from the entire church at general conference session, and that really does serve as the authority. And just so that I could, uh, just a personal observation about the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. Um, I have been very impressed just to watch Elder Wilson personally mm -hmm. as we had wonderful conversations, listened to papers from all different viewpoints and got to know each other and it was just a wonderful experience Amen. all the way around um, and learning how to love each other even when we don't agree, you know, it was really good. And one thing that I really appreciated was Elder Wilson just didn't say a word hardly. Yeah. I mean, only when he had to answer something related to the administration or what have you. Um, there. I've seen no attempts or even suggestions of trying to assert what his particular view may be. Most of the world church or much of the world church might not even know what his view is because he has simply allowed the process to take place so that the church can come to its decision as a body. And uh, so I just really appreciate the makeup of the church. I would like to remind us of a quote from the third volume of the Testimonies 492 at this point. Ellen White says, I have been shown that no man's judgment, okay, and that would be Elder Wilson or any union president or anybody, should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man, okay? We're not by individuals, pastors, 
heads, anybody. But when the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but must be surrendered. Your error was in persistently maintaining your private judgment of your duty against the voice of the highest authority the Lord has upon the earth. So we as a people really are not controlled by one person, but it's all a representative type of um, government. Uh, and let's uh, deal with that on practical terms. You know, it's been said that uh, the decision not to ordain women to the gospel ministry uh, has come from the general conference. As if the administrators of the general conference have imposed this upon the church. But the fact is that this decision doesn't come from up down. It comes from down up. Because two general conference sessions, 1990 and 1995, where all of the delegates of the World Church were gathered together, they said no to the request of the North American Division. And so, not ordaining women is the will of the World Church through its representatives. It is not a decision that has been handed down from above and imposed like a dictatorship because our system of organization is a representative. We, we are not an Episcopal style of organization like the Catholic Church. We are not a congregational type where the, everything resides in the local congregation. We are a representative world church. And that's the only way that a world church can function is on a representative way. There's no other way that it can function. Yep. And the question is, how do we, with a representative group that is so diverse from all over the world, still keep together as a global church. This is a very crucial question at this time because different people have very strong opinions as we've seen, but what is holding us together as a global church? Let, let me respond first of all, Laurel, to your reference to three, volume three of the testimonies, page 492, because there is no doubt there will, <clears throat> there will be individuals watching this panel uh, through whatever means they have who are going to remember that there were a number of Ellen White statements that were made later that at least on the surface appeared to contradict or to change her position when in fact they did not. The only thing that Ellen White changed as she later would explain in volume 9 of the testimonies pages 260 and 261 which was written in 1909 the only point where there had been some variance was when the general conference had been controlled illegitimately by one individual or a small group of individuals. And when they had usurped that authority for themselves, then Ellen White said, no, we can't accept the general conference as the voice of God. But at no time did she say that the general conference in session had ceased to be the voice of God. And in volume nine, pages 260 and 261, which was her address before the general conference in the year 1909, she repeated almost word for word the statement in volume uh, three, 
page 492. And I think it's very important for people to bring that out because on both sides of the Adventist theological spectrum, there have been individuals who have tried to, de to uh, denigrate the authority of the General Conference and dismiss it as corrupt and irrelevant to these kinds of issues uh, on the basis of some of those statements that Ellen White wrote subsequent to the one in Volume 3 of the Testimonies, but because they haven't considered the statement in Volume 9, they have come away confused. And, um, but to specifically, before we move on to address the point you asked, you know, let's be clear that our task as God's people is not to keep everybody together. Unity according to the prayer of our Lord in John chapter 17 is the consequence of sanctification through the Father's word of truth. Before Jesus prayed in verse 21 of John 17, that they all may be one, he prayed in verses 17 and 19 that they be sanctified through the truth. Unless there is that sanctification through the word of truth, there will not be the unity for which our Lord prayed. Let us not pretend that the consequences of the coming year are going to leave everybody content and together. In all likelihood, they will not. But our goal as God's faithful people and as leaders of the Lord's flock is not superficial togetherness. Our duty is strict and unbending faithfulness. Allow me a, a brief anecdotal perspective on this. I did not grow up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And as a teenager, I spent a year with an Adventist family as an ex exchange student from Germany. And I was attracted to the church by the love of the people. A, a very key element was just plain love, genuine Christian courtesy extended to me. But somebody could say you can find that in a motorcycle club, stamp collectors, bird watchers, a, a sense of, of unity and, and loving each other and accepting each other, even though I think Christian love exceeds any club experience. But there was another element that attracted me to the church and made me follow through with my decision to get baptized. And that was something external of humans. It wasn't just love, it was truth. Amen. There was an objective element, and, uh, and the scriptures played a key role in that experience that drew us Seventh-day Adventists together. And I've experienced this unity not just on the fellowship basis or, or reduced to haystacks, <laughs> but, but there was a doctrinal unity Amen. that you can experience and taste when you travel around the world. Uh, in this context, I'd like to share a quote with you. It comes from uh, Gospel Workers, page 92, the 1892 edition. A uh, very brief quote here. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ will open more clearly to those who will believe on him that which he has inspired holy men to write concerning the truth. And it is thus that the unity for which Christ prayed is to be effected. We are to receive sanctification 
and uh, Kevin mentioned that already, through obedience to the word and the spirit of truth. Now, here it comes. Listen to this. We cannot surrender the truth in order to accomplish this union. For the very means by which it is to be gained is sanctification through the truth. Human wisdom would change all this. Thinking this basis of union too narrow, men would affect a union through conformity to popular opinions, hmm. through a compromise with the world. But truth is God's basis for the unity of yeah. his people. Well, don't steal my thunder, Ingo. I was going to quote that tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> well, some things might have to be quoted twice. Repetitive presentation of the truth is a feature of this symposium, and it is an imperative. I think that uh, we have seen that truth is really something that can bind us as a global church. You see a brother or sister in Africa, in Thailand, anywhere, we should feel at home yes. talking about things. There should be a warmth between us because we, we see things the same way. And it's very exciting when you meet a brother or a sister and you see things the same way, there's just nothing like it. May, may I just add a, a P.S.? Uh, having come to the Adventist Church from the outside, and I've been in denominational work now for 20 years, I've noticed a trend. When I came to the Adventist Church, doctrine was something beautiful. We were proud of truth and the seventh day is the Sabbath. The, the last few years... Uh, I'm, I'm sensing that truth is something cold and, and to be abandoned, and all we need is Jesus. Now, do we need Jesus? Absolutely. But I've discovered that, that Jesus and doctrine and truth go together. Jesus is the author of truth. All of our fundamental beliefs find their center in, in Jesus Christ, and, and I would be scared and I resist this artificial separation of Jesus and doctrine. Amen. That is, did you want to say something? Uh, just a brief comment. Unity is based on common beliefs, not on a common mission. Mission grows out of the beliefs. Amen. Excellent. What has really gotten us interested in this whole governance thing is um, maybe this women's ordination question. Um, some of our unions have lately faced um, very specific issues along this area, namely Columbia Union and Pacific Union. And uh, as a local person here, I would just like to ask you for a little inside uh, track into what you saw, uh, Elder Bohr, as you experienced this. I know you were even one of the constituency meetings. Please, would you share? Yeah, that uh, took place in August of 2012. I was a delegate, so I had a firsthand uh, knowledge of what was happening there. Um, I'd just like to say that it appeared more like a political rally than it did uh, a spiritual meeting 
where there was going to be a lot of prayer in making a very important decision. I'd just like to read um, what the union bylaws say, and then I would like to read how they propose to change the bylaws. Uh, the bylaws of the union read, all policies, purposes, and procedures of this union shall be in harmony with the working policies and procedures of the North American Division and the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. So basically, all policies shall be in harmony. But to the session was taken this change, and this is how it read. In general, the policies, purposes, and procedures of the union will be in harmony. Not shall be. Shall is a stronger word. Will be in harmony with the working policies and procedures of the North American Division and the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. So they wanted to change the bylaws in order to approve women's ordination because they only had to be in harmony with the bylaws in general. So they attempted to change the bylaw. But they lost. Barely. It was 65% to 35%. One more, percent, one more percentage point and they would have uh, passed the change in the bylaws. Now when they were not successful in changing the bylaws, a conference president, and I've, been, I've actually written, I'm in the process of writing on this, so I'd like to read what I've written. Um, when the vote to change the bylaws failed by just four votes, one of the conference presidents, which happens to be ours here in Central California, courageously stood up to question whether the session could go forward with the second motion to ordain candidates without regard to gender. I mean, if they couldn't change the bylaws, they have to be in harmony with the policies of the NAD and the General Conference. He argued that to do so would be illegal because the bylaws require that all policies, purposes, and procedures of this union shall be in harmony with the working policies and procedures of the North American Division and the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. But the conference president's point of order was quickly disposed of by the parliamentarians, who, by the way, were paid employees of the union, conflict of interest, who assured the chair that it would be perfectly proper to go on with the second vote Notably, the parliamentarians were lawyers that were remunerated by the union, which, of course, was a clear conflict of interest. And so, uh, by a vote of 79% to 21%, uh, the constituency session approved vote number two, which was to ordain uh, individuals without regard to gender, thus violating their own policy because they weren't able to change the policy. Um, and, you know, I'm no, I know I'm monopolizing a lot of time here, but I, I want to share one other thing. Once we go down this road, you set a very dangerous precedent in changing the policies. Let me give you an example. In the Bible, tithing is a principle that applies to everyone everywhere. Right? We all agree? Yeah. Tithing is a principle? But listen up. The distribution of the tithe is a policy matter. The way in which the tithe is distributed is a policy matter. It's decided what percentages go to the conference, what percentage goes to the union, what percentage goes to the GC, what percentage goes to the division. 
Now, if the union is able to change the policies of the denomination regarding the ordination of women, what would keep a local church from saying, we don't agree with the policy that says we're supposed to send all the tithes to the conference. We're only going to send 50% of the tithes to the conference. Do you think the conference would sit by and say, well, you know, the church is totally autonomous, and you know they have decision-making power, so they can decide to keep 50% of the tithes. I rather doubt it. So once you do it on a union level, it becomes a problem on a division level, it becomes a problem on a conference level, it becomes a nightmare. And there are other issues down the road that are going to face us. And if we don't abide by the policies, you know, Ellen White says that we're, that, that we're supposed to take the Bible not only in doctrine, but also in practice. Both of those things. So that's basically what happened uh, in the Pacific Union and as, as well as uh, the Columbia Union. Can anybody imagine the chaos that this would unleash? And we're, we're only seeing the first, um, the first fragmentation, fra fragmentary evidences of this. But by the way, it's not just two unions. Let's remember that the Netherlands Union has also voted not only to consider its commission ministers synonymous with ordained ministers, they have also voted to accept practicing homosexuals into the fellowship of the church, which is totally contrary to the word of God and to the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So what you really have in the case of these three unions are actions that are completely illegal based not only upon the Seventh-day Adventist church manual and the fundamental beliefs that are stated there, also on the basis of the General Conference and North American Division working policies, which absolutely mandate that unions and local conferences be in strict harmony. And the word there is shall be, not will be, shall be in harmony with the policies of the worldwide body of Seventh-day Adventists in General Conference assembled. Uh, th there, there is no legal way that a union can put in its bylaws the proposal that failed by four votes here in the Pacific Union and which I understand some time ago had actually been voted in the Columbia Union. That is a completely illegal action. They too put the words in general now, you know, I appreciated what Doug Batchelor said at that session because I was watching it. Uh, remember, some of you may have heard what he said when he observed that how would a husband and a wife feel at the marriage altar if the vow taken said, in general, I will keep myself to thee only. How many of the ladies here would appreciate that kind of ambiguity? Or the men, for that matter. I mean, um, this is absurd. What we're talking about, these are illegal actions, and the fact of the matter is that as the president of the General Conference stated, there will have to be grave consequences. If I could, I'd like to read a letter that was sent to the president of the Pacific Union before the constituency session, because it shows that the, church, the local churches understand what's involved here. Uh, this is from a letter that was written by a church within the Southern California Territory. This bylaw will have effectively been changed from a command to comply with GC and NAD policy 
into a non-binding description of what the policies will generally be. Obviously, these changes go far beyond female ordination. If you approve this bylaw change, you will give the Pacific Union permission not to comply with NAD and GC policies and procedures whenever it chooses not to comply. This is essentially secession from the world church. That's right. And they go, they go on to say, we believe that the proposed change to the bylaws has such serious ramifications for the future of the churches in the Pacific Union Conference in a much broader scope than the current issue of ordination policy that we urge leadership and executive committees to re-examine the process that is being used to expand ordination policy and seek process, process solutions that are not based on a philosophy of congregationalism, either intentionally or unintentionally. And this is the last paragraph. A vote to change the bylaws as proposed would certainly be seen as a victory by some well-meaning people. However, if it happens, we believe it will be sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the belly, and potentially create a major fracture in the church. So says a local church in this union. Very good. John? <clears throat> well, I see time is running short here, and I better get a word in edgewise before <laughs> we close. Um, what we've been talking about here are policies and what the unions have been doing, and these are important issues. But we still have a major problem on our hands. Even if the unions had voted appropriately and not to go ahead and ordain, we still would have had the problem. And the problem is commissioned pastors, commissioned women pastors. The problem here is the authority of God's word. Amen. And this is where we come back to the general conference session. The general conference in session is the highest authority in voting. Now, the issue of electing women as local elders was something that was adopted by an annual council in 1984, mm -hmm. the spring council in 1975. Both of those policies, those policy decisions that were incorporated into policies, were not in harmony with scripture. In other words, they were not voted in a general conference session. Uh -huh. So we're dealing here with a doctrinal issue. That's right. So it's immaterial what the unions have been doing or haven't been doing. The real issue is what does the worldwide church want to do with the authority of Scripture? Amen. That's why this 2015 General Conference session is so important. The issue needs to be addressed. What does the Bible say? Who is qualified to serve in the office of elder and minister? Amen. And the church must make a decision once and for all. We must go back to 1975 and not allow a small group of men to determine and dictate Scripture and what Scripture says. It must be determined by the representatives, the entire world field. Amen. I would like to suggest that out of this issue with the unions came the request for the TOSC committee. And this was a session that needed to take place in order to, for everyone to be able to understand that it was a theological issue. It wasn't just governance. 
Does anybody want to share the process and the representation and the uh, situation that we faced when we were in the task committees? Well, I think the president of the general conference explained it well to us in our final meeting uh, several months ago. Those of us that were on the committee will certainly remember this. He made it very clear that the membership of the committee was not intended to be geographically representative of the world church. Had it been so, the straw vote that was, that was uh, taken, and by the way, that is all that it was, there are those who have tried to represent that as an official motion or action when it was nothing of the kind. You know, some of us should have been sharp enough, frankly, there at that meeting to demand that that vote not be taken because we knew exactly how it was going to be spun by certain individuals. But the point of the matter is, Elder Wilson said that the makeup of the committee was designed to reflect those regions of the world body where this debate has been most intense, namely North America, Europe, and Australia, the developing countries of the world. Uh, that, by the way, is barely 15% of the worldwide Adventist body. <laughs> That's right. And so the, 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 point, the point is that the reason the members were chosen, about 80% of the members of the committee were from North America. Or, uh, or I think from other developed uh, developed regions of the field, um, and, and that was not because of representation. It was because this is where the discussion has taken place, and it was the design of the general conference president and his officers that all of the views in the church be aired on our committee. Our committee was not a legislative body. It is purely, or was purely, advisory. Even less than that. Less than that. Less than advisory. It was a study committee. That's right. Uh, and it is right in the name of the committee, the fact that it is just for study the matter and convey whatever was a consensus uh, reached in this process of studying the ordination of women. Actually, there was no authority of any kind uh, in that committee. Authority, I mean, in the sense of making decisions. Uh, the decision-making power of the church belongs to the general conference session. And that is where it should be done. Uh, talking about this uh, ordination of women elders, we had two actions, one taken in the spring meeting of 1979, and the other one came in the annual council, uh, 18... 1984. Why do we begin with the spring meeting? That is a whole strategy. Uh, because the spring meeting doesn't have full representation from the world field in the General Conference Executive Committee. But it has full administrative representation from 
the North American division. So, the overwhelming majority of the committee is the representation from North America. It was very easy to take an, an action at that committee. Normally, these items never are, are taken into the uh, agenda of the spring meeting. Never. When it is done, it is done for a purpose. And they, this was the purpose. Now, when it, it was made the decision at the um, meetings of the annual council in 1984, at that time, something was very interesting that happened. We were preparing um, for uh, the annual council that was coming in a year. And uh, so the, in the recommendation that was going to go to the uh, session of the 1985, it was supposed to go this item to the session because uh, it would have to be approved by the session in order to go to the church manual because it's a, an item that belongs to the church manual. But, you know, there are always people lobbying the processes. And it came a group, we don't know how many mm, or who were doing that work, but after taking an action, a few uh, hours after that, in the evening, it came again for discussion, the same action, actually with the motion to decide the matter at the annual council, not sending it to the session. Mm. And it carried. So it, would, it never went to the session. That's why it never went to the church manual. Mm. And if it is not in the church manual, it is illegal. Unless we take it as a process, which is not yet finished. Amen. It would be finished at the session. That's right. Amen. And that's why the world field didn't accept the decision. They didn't put in practice. Just a few divisions actually began to uh, appoint women elders. The rest of the world, nothing. Because two reasons. One, it is not biblical. Second, it is not legal within the policies of the church. So the world didn't want to contaminate the process and then decided not to act practice, to put it in practice. It is as uh, an action of the General Conference Annual Council 
and previous the Spring Council, but never a session of the General Conference. Therefore, actually up to this day, it is not approved in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Fully approved only at the session. You're talking about local elders. Local elders, yes. This is what we are talking at the moment. I just want to say that these unilateral actions have been very alarming to me. Because if they stand, we might as well quit talking about unity. It's gone. And not only that, what are the ultimate implications if that kind of procedure methodology is continued for the local congregation? The local church can vote to do away with tithing. You know, just one example. Oh, well, let's start keeping Sunday with the rest of the Christian world. You know, I mean, this is very critical. The Theology of Ordination Study Committee, you cannot accuse Elder Wilson of stacking that committee. It had a very fair representations uh, of, of, of all kinds of opinions and, and people. Uh, you also have to keep in mind that straw poll, I've noticed, is interpreted different ways. People immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, the majority is in favor of women's ordination. You can also turn that statistic around and say, no, two-thirds of that committee is in favor of male leadership. Okay. So I, I want to encourage you to be very careful with premature conclusions. And... Uh, I think some division committees were stacked from the start with a bias. And those numbers that come out of those committees with majority reports, minority reports, you have to keep that in context. That is a very small group of people that produces the labels majority, minority. I want to conclude on a personal note. This theology of study, of ordination study committee forced me to study this issue from scratch with the Bible, spirit of prophecy, and prayer. Amen. And that was very helpful for me personally. Amen. Amen. I want to read a statement that was published in the Pacific Union Recorder leading up to the Union Constituency Session, which to me is very disturbing. Maybe we should end on a disturbing note so that people do some research. This is what it says. The World Church adopts common baptism, baptism vows and membership policies, but only the local church has final authority to decide who will and will not be a member in a particular local church. The church manual says that working on the Sabbath is a reason that a member may be disfellowshipped, but only the local church has the authority to decide if a member who is working on Sabbath will actually be disfellowshipped. The decision of the local church cannot be mandated or vetoed by the local conference, union, division, or GC. That goes right along with what uh, Dr. Holmes was saying. Dangerous precedent when you, when you say the power resides only in the local church or only in the union, etc. So, uh, you know, this type of thing that is published in official denominational publications is disturbing. And I think that it shows that ultimately this whole issue of women's ordination uh, if uh, it is adopted, uh, you know, 
will lead to congregationalism. We should not be too worried about that. It is true that uh, we are facing serious difficulties. But remember, this is God's Amen. church. Amen. And uh, we should not be discouraged. Amen. I, when I'm preaching, I say to, to the members, stay here, Amen. no matter what. Amen. Because it, it is coming a time when those who do not belong to the church will be taken out, mm -hmm. entirely leaving the church. Mm -hmm. As people from here are going out, people from Babylon will be coming in. Yes. Right. Amen. And uh, those who are going to be saved are going to be united together. Amen. And united together within the remnant. Amen. There may be people saying that we are about to end our history in the world. No we are not. Amen. Be confident in the Lord. Amen. And uh, we are going to end with prayer. <laughs> our Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power of your will that will decide everything for us. And we are willing to accept whatever you ordered the church to do. We pray for the delegates and we pray for every member. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.